Welcome to My American Melting Pot, the podcast where we have conversations and tell stories about the intersection of race in real life. My name is Lori L. Tharps, and I am a journalist, I'm an author, I'm a mother of three, and I like to call myself a diversity diva. And I'm really excited to be recording this episode live from the Respect Women's Podcast Festival at Amalgam Comics and Coffee House in Philadelphia. What? And I am super pumped to be here because Amalgam Comics, if you didn't know, was the first comic book store on the East Coast to be owned by a black woman. And that feels really appropriate for The Melting Pot because I, like I said, consider myself a diversity diva and I am all about supporting and shouting out people of color, breaking down doors and being in places where there used to only be white people. But I also like to shout out really woke white people. I like to shout out Latinx people, working with Korean people, making really cool music together. I like to shout out Native American people who tell the rest of us that Thanksgiving is a lie. Um, I just created My American Melting Pot, the brand. It's a blog, it's a podcast to amplify stories that celebrate diversity and break down why race impacts just about everything that we know as real life. So that's what this episode is going to be about, is breaking down race in real life. So we're going to talk about that. We're going to play a game. We're going to have so much fun. But first, we have to take a break for a Melting Pot Minute. What's a melting pot minute, you're asking? And I'm going to tell you. A melting pot minute is where I always just like to talk about something current and cultural because this is a bi-weekly show and things are always popping off that are so very melting pot that I want to have that opportunity to just give you my opinion on something that's, you know, making news. And today's melting pot minute is brought to you by... Really? (laughs) When you do something, you know it's wrong... And all people can say is, really? Really? (laughs) Today's Melting Pot Minute is dedicated to the 1619 Project. I don't know how many of you have seen the 1619 Project. I brought a copy of it with me. Those of you who are listening can't see it, but I am holding a copy of the New York Times Magazine from last week. This is the 1619 Project. Personally, I had to go to five different stores all over the city of Philadelphia just to get my hands on a copy of the Sunday Times last week. And when I did find the last remaining copy at a Acme, I think it was, it was like strewn all over. I had to piece it back together again. But I was so happy that I got this copy. Such a hot item. So those of you who don't know, the 1619 Project is this like epic body of work that commemorates the 400th anniversary of the arrival of the first enslaved Africans in what we now call the United States. Not just a commemorative issue, the magazine also tries to tell the true story of how race-based slavery completely impacted and it was at the base of every single aspect of American culture. So there are stories about healthcare, about the music industry, about city planning about the economy. It's all in there. And it's not just in this paper version of the magazine. There's an online multimedia version. There was a podcast. There is a podcast that's going deeper into the stories. There was a live event. So this was a big deal. And it's really clear that the New York Times was serious about exposing the truth about slavery in the United States and basically the crap deal that Black people have been given as a result of it. I think that it shows that the New York Times was really 
ready to start a conversation about reparations, about amending the lies that this country was built on and restoring some respect to black Americans who have managed to not just survive, but thrive in a country that was literally and figuratively created to destroy us. I shouldn't say it was created to destroy us, but that was developed in a way that was meant to destroy us, that was going to destroy us. So my question is why if this was the purpose of the 1619 Project to kind of restore respect to Black people and to spend all this money and time and resources on this project meant to restore dignity to Black Americans, why did the New York Times not use the capital B when referring to Black people in this production? And I'm going to uh, take a little pause in case people don't know what I'm talking about. So, I am a journalist and a writer, so my work is all about the written word. And one of my biggest pet peeves is when I'm reading, and I'm reading about people, and there's a list of people. It looks like this. Asian Americans, Latinos, Latinx, however you refer to them, Asian Americans, Native Americans, and Black people. Everybody gets a capital letter until you get to the Black people, and they're in the lower case. Now, just visually it makes you stop, or at least it makes me stop. I'm saying, why does everybody get a capital letter except black people? And then I'm thinking, well, what does lowercase black refer to? It's a color. It's a nice color. I love black. I'm not wearing it today, but I usually am wearing black. But the color is not the people. Black people are a distinct cultural group, and as such should have a capital letter to refer to them. It only makes sense. If you don't believe me, think about Native Americans. Native American is capitalized. Native is not a proper noun, but we capitalize it anyway because it's referring to a particular group of people. Still don't believe me? Go back in time. We can go all the way back to the 1920s when W.E.B. Du Bois had the same thought. But back then, he was arguing for the capital letter N in the word Negro. Negro was lowercase. Negro is simply coming from the Latin word black. And Du Bois was saying, hey, we're not just black as in the color. We are a people and we are a unique cultural group. Capitalize the N. And he started this big letter writing campaign and he refused to let anybody publish his work who did not capitalize the N in Negro. Many, many, many publications refused because they said, well, if we capitalize the N in Negro, that might lead to equality. And we don't want that, do we? So for almost a decade, this letter writing campaign went on. And finally, in 1930, the New York Times finally relented and said, you know what? You're right. We are going to start capitalizing the N in Negro. And they didn't just capitalize it and, you know, like in an angry huff, like, fine, you wore us down. They really did some soul searching. And they actually wrote in their editorial pages, quote, in our style book, Negro is now added to the list of words to be capitalized. It is not merely a typographical change. It is an act of recognition of racial self-respect for those who have been for generations in the lower case. Just to reiterate, it is an act of recognition of racial self-respect for those who have been for generations in the lower case. So black is the new Negro. So why can't we get some respect from the New York Times? Really, New York Times? Really? 
I like to give people the benefit of the doubt. Like, maybe over the course of this many, almost 100 years, the New York Times forgot about the Negro, forgot about the capital letter. So I took it upon myself to write a very stirring I think, impactful editorial and sent it to a very important newspaper so that they could publish it and perhaps the New York Times would pay attention. Can anyone guess what newspaper published my editorial? Did you say the New York Times? Yes, it was in the New York Times. They published the editorial that I wrote arguing for the capital B. They published it happily. They actually asked me to publish it because they had seen my blog post about it on my blog. So thank you for publishing it, New York Times. Thank you for publishing the 1619 Project. But why can't we get a capital B? That is my Melting Pot Minute for this week. Thank you. Now, let's get to the meat of our conversation today, which is talking about race in real life. I'm really using this as an opportunity because I'm guessing that Not a lot of you are regular My American Melting Pot listeners. Can I just get a show of hands for how many people are regular listeners of My American Melting Pot? Awesome. My one fan is here. (laughs) And she's from Tennessee. Look how far she came just to see me. I'm so impressed. So actually, I wanted to take this opportunity to explain a little bit about My American Melting Pot, why I created this show, and what I mean by my title. And I really thought, you know, yeah, this is the perfect time to do our origin story, because we are in a comic book store, and everybody loves an origin story, right? And also, because this is actually going to be the first episode of season three of My American Melting Pot, I've been on a bit of a hiatus for the summer. So I thought, you know, perfect timing, let's recap and explain what we're doing at My American Melting Pot. So, starting with the name, people often get confused by the title. They're like, who's Melting Pot? Why is it a melting pot? Is it really only about America? I'm going to just take this word by word. What do I mean by My American Melting Pot? First things first, the my. People have asked me, is it just your stories? Is it all about you, Lori? No, it's not. But the story ideas for the show come from my little brain. And my brain is really different than a lot of other people's brains because it was formed by, you know, my life. And my life has been kind of interesting. So first of all, I consider myself a quirky black girl. That's not an official designation, but that's how I think of myself. And I grew up in Caucasia, which is also known as Wisconsin. And... um, That makes the quirkiness even more quirky. I always had a very ethnically diverse group of friends, which is hard to do when you grow up in Caucasia, but I still managed to always find the others. And I just kind of always found that finding the, let's say, the other in the group, other people who were ethnically diverse, I could always make friends with those people. I also lived in Morocco when I was in high school as an exchange student. I spent a year living in Spain in college. I'm currently married to a Spanish man. I have three bilingual, biracial, bicultural children who all look nothing alike. They don't look like me. They don't look like each other. They don't look like my husband, which just makes for a really weird family life. And um, I know way more than the average person about black hair and black hair history and culture because that's what I've been um, researching and writing about for the last 20 years. And I know a lot about global colorism for the same reason. So I recognize that my perspective in the world is not normal. And I say that in 
understanding what is normal. Well, I'm basing the fact that in the United States, we still live in a super segregated society. And whether you're black, whether you're white, whether you're Asian, most people live amongst their own kind. I have never lived amongst my own kind. And I've often sought out places where there was no majority. And to me, that is normal. But to most other people, that's very abnormal. And it always strikes me when I'm in a conversation with somebody and I'll say something like, gee, I went to a Sikh wedding and it was so fun. And people go, what does Sikh mean? And I don't even know what you're talking about. And I was like, you don't have a Sikh friend? You don't know what it means to see, a, you know, have somebody go to a wedding and come in riding on a white horse? Like, wh what? Like, everybody doesn't do that? So I think that my perspective is worth sharing because it is unique, because it is different. And that's the my in my American melting pot. So no, I'm not always talking about myself. I'm just using my perspective on reality to kind of generate story ideas. And the second part of the title, My American Melting Pot, is also that I recognize that I'm an American and that I have an American perspective on things. And I don't try to pretend that I can be anything but American. We do talk about the world outside of the United States. In fact, I was in Spain all summer working on an episode about the black community in Spain. So that's going to be an awesome episode. So you should definitely listen for that. But even that, I recognize that what I'm doing, what I'm looking at when I go to study a different culture, a different community, I have an American lens. And that's important to recognize that. So that brings us to the melting pot. So here's the word that a lot of people have problems with. When I say that I'm, um, my show is called My American Melting Pot, people don't always know what I mean by melting pot they also sometimes get mad because they think that melting pot is a misnomer for what we have in the United States. And then there are the people who think of melting pot as that fondue restaurant, and they think that they're going to get a podcast about melted cheese recipes, and that's super disappointing for them when it's not. So I use melting pot as a euphemism for American diversity. In fact, I kind of use the word melting pot to just mean diversity, like multicultural diversity. So I, I use it as a synonym for multicultural. For example, if I'm watching TV and I see a commercial, like a Coca-Cola commercial, where there's like an Asian woman drinking some Coke, and then the black girlfriend is drinking Coke, and then the white person is drinking Coke, and they're like super happy drinking their Coke together, I'm like, oh my God, that was such a melting pot commercial. Or if I am looking at a magazine and there's, you know, a black man and he's with his Asian girlfriend and they have their little like Blasian baby, I'm like, oh my God, that's such a cute, melting pot family. So I just use melting pot to signify multicultural, but I'm totally not ignorant about the fact that the actual origins of the word melting pot are kind of suspect. It was used as a way to get immigrants to kind of assimilate into American culture and forget their true origins. I'm also very much aware that we are not a melting pot in the United States, that people do maintain their ethnicity, that we are not allowed to necessarily mix and blend in a lot of ways. And I wouldn't even want it to be a melting pot. I wouldn't want people to lose their unique cultures. I recognize that we, more than a melting pot, we're more like a patchwork quilt. I think people are a lot more comfortable when you say America is more like a salad or a stew, you know, things that don't mush together. I think patchwork quilt held together with like raggedy stitches, barely holding this together before it just falls apart is probably even more appropriate, but I don't think my American raggedy patchwork quilt has the same like 
gist, you know, it doesn't sound as good, doesn't roll off the tongue. I like alliterations as a writer. So that's why I kept My American Melting Pot as the title. And I started this actually as a blog almost 13 years ago. And I like it. I have, you know, I have the stickers. So um, I'm going to keep and the bag. So I'm going to keep the title and just hope that people understand that I'm using melting pot in that capacity. Still, being called My American Melting Pot could lead people to just misunderstand what the show is about. And again, like I said, we're at the beginning of season three and you can always innovate, right? You can always change. And when people give you the same comments, like, you know, I was looking for a cheese show. I was thinking this was going to be something different. So I added a tagline. So now I'm going to have to get a new bag with a new tagline on it. But the tagline is, you know, my American melting pot stories at the intersection of race and real life. And that I thought would give people a clear understanding that what we are trying to do on the show, and I always use the royal we, it's just me, it's me. But what I'm trying to do is talk about how not big picture items, not the politics of the United States, not white supremacy globally, but regular real life is impacted in the United States, particularly by race. Everything has some sort of connection with race. I mean, the way I think about it is like, I mean, some people say that the foundation of America was built on race. I say that America sweats racism. Like anything that we're doing, like racism is going to come out of our pores. So like, like if America was a man named Bruce and Bruce walked by you, you'd be like, ew, Bruce, you smell like racism. <laughs> so like, that's how much I recognize that race is in everything. And I feel like if we talk about it, and we can talk about it in ways that, again, aren't so big picture, but are just regular, everyday things that people can relate to it. They can connect with the story. And maybe they can even do something about it in their own lives, right? You can't go and change a law individually, but maybe you can change your perspective on something. Maybe you can change the way you think about something. Maybe you can even change the way you, you know, handle your business because you've now thought about something in real everyday life differently. Maybe you can change your shopping habits because you now recognize that maybe that company that's making soap, you didn't think about it before, but that company is actually doing harm in a racial way. Like the episodes that we've talked about so far on The Melting Pot, we've done a show on racist technology. We've talked about how soap dispensers that are made with technology can be racist. Who knew? We talked about fried chicken. Fried chicken is not racist, but people think about fried chicken in racist ways. And fried chicken is actually a global, like, it's like a global delicacy, but people associate it with black Americans in particular. And that's not racist per se, but there's a racial conversation that you could have when you think about fried chicken in South Korea or fried chicken in Guatemala, which we did talk about on episode 15. I think you should all listen to it. It's a really good one. Um, my goal, again, for the podcast is to really get people to think about, to rethink about how they conceptualize race in real life. And I want them to hear something on the podcast that inspires them or teaches them something new or shows them a version of diversity or reality that they never witnessed or experienced before. I personally, when I listen to podcasts, I want to learn something. Like, I don't really like listening to podcasts where people 
tell jokes with each other. They're like inside jokes and you don't understand. And they're just cackling like, oh, that's so funny, girl. You're funny. And I'm like, I'm not, I don't know. That was like a waste of my time. So I want my podcast to be something that you walk away and you learn something that you can take it and use it in your real life. And I would like to think that people feel a little smarter about race. And I don't want people to feel depressed when they finish listening to the show. And I really kind of think that I don't think racism is funny, but I do think racism is absurd. And I think that when you do break it down, sometimes you can find, if not humor, you can find a way that you can connect and deal with it and maybe do something, um, become like a an everyday activist, if you will. You don't have to go out and march and burn something. You could maybe just change something about your habits or your thinking, and that would make me very, very happy. So I promised that we were going to play a game, and this is the part where we play the game, because you guys are here. This is a live audience, and I wanted to prove the point that race impacts everything with real life. And so we're playing this game called Stump the Diversity Diva. You give me a subject, and I will tell you how it connects with race. And the subject should be, like, real life. Like, you could say breakfast cereal. And then I would have to come up with a way of how breakfast cereal is somehow related to race and how I would turn that into an episode for the podcast, right? Now, real truth, clearly I'm just trying to get ideas for the show. (laughs) But... We're going to, you know, you might call this like a focus group or something, but no, it's a game and we're all going to have fun. And I'm going to literally get my pen out because if y'all do give me a super good idea, I'm writing it down. Okay. So now that I think about it, I should have brought prizes if somebody stumps me, but I didn't, but I did bring some stickers and you can all have one. So it'll be like, you know, totally American where everybody gets one participating. You're not going to actually get one because you were the smartest one here. And I have some bookmarks. I love reading. So a bookmark is a gift. It's a gift. So who would like to go first? Oh, yes. Go ahead. Laundry detergent. Oh, I was actually just thinking about this. Okay. <laughs> How many of you remember? I, I'm old. I know. Maybe you don't think I'm, I'm really old. So when I was growing up, there was a commercial for Cheer, I believe. Cheer laundry detergent. And the tagline was, it was so you'd see this Asian man at the laundry and his white customer would come in and be like, Mr. Chin, how do you get the laundry so clean? And he'd be like, I can't tell you. Ancient Chinese secret. And then his wife would come in and be like, why do you tell people that? You know, it's just cheer. And he's like, that's how we're going to keep customers. That was the racist, most racist, like laundry detergent commercial. And I'm like, how did they get away with that? But we have come far. I think. I haven't looked at a lot of laundry detergent commercials recently, but funny thing, I was doing laundry this morning and just thought, like, that was the most racist commercial. Just popped them up, because this is, remember I mentioned, but my brain works like this. I'm doing laundry. I'm like, that's racist. Like, this, this laundry is racist. What is it? That's probably what gets my mind going, because I'm like, darks and lights. <laughs> Why? <laughs> um, who else can stump the diversity diva? Go ahead. Missionaries in Africa today. Missionaries. <laughs> Missionaries in Africa today. Okay, this is a good one. 
historically, we know that missionaries tended to be of the white European persuasion going into countries of black, brown-ish people. It's hard because when you say black and brown people, I'm like black, American, like African-ish people. And then brown, I'm like Latino and or maybe Southeast Asian. But what about everybody else? Like what are their colors? We don't have the words, but we can talk about that later. So the missionaries used to be white European people usually going into countries of black, brown, and other people. Today, however, has everybody heard that tragic story of the missionary who went and tried to spread the word of God to a group of people and they killed him? They killed him. He was Asian. Yes, he was. So I think this would be a really great conversation to have because, you know, we tend to think about missionaries as white people trying to dominate people of color when in fact, God's message can be spread by anybody, right? Um, And missionaries don't have to be a certain color. And I think in some ways, there's progress in that, right? Like in some ways, the missionary is now people of any ethnic group, but when they're spreading, it's not their race. You know, this Asian man wasn't trying to dominate this cultural group with his culture. It was just his religion. So I think that would be an excellent topic In fact, I almost thought about doing that as a show. But to have that topic of, you know, what is the color of missionary work and how does it change the conversation? Because we're no longer looking at that conversation through like the lens of white supremacy. It's more like Christian supremacy, right? Because it's, um, it tends to be, um, if I'm not mistaken, I don't think Jews are allowed to proselytize. I don't think Muslims are allowed to proselytize. I could be wrong. But Christianity is the big promoter of proselytizing. So all these religions have different ethnic groups. So that's an excellent episode idea. Thank you. Who else can stump the diversity diva? Yes. Cooling systems. Like air conditioning. Oh, girl. Oh, you guys are like feeding me this. Okay. I just found, okay, so this summer I was in the south of Spain and we rented an apartment and I was like in the deep, deep south in a tiny, tiny town. And when we found this apartment through a friend of a friend of a friend, my husband is Spanish, so that's that was the connection. We didn't we didn't need to do Airbnb. We did the like WhatsApp, ask somebody, you know, you know. And we got and I was like, please just make sure there's air conditioning. So I was having this conversation with my friend from Malaysia last night. My friend from Malaysia who's married to a German Spanish man. So again, my life is very colorful. She informed me that those cooling systems now that everybody has, those split units, you know, they put them on the wall and it's much cheaper than doing um, like duct work and everything, invented in Asia. That everybody in Asia had those way before anybody in the United States. We think they're new. Like I'm like, these new systems are so amazing. No, they had those systems in Asia for a super long time. And then they came to the United States and in Europe much more recently. So here we are thinking we've invented some new technology. No, we didn't. No, we did not. So we're going to talk about them as an Asian invention that came to the United States and Europe. Okay, somebody else. Stump the diversity. Just regular, everyday, real life. I'll figure out how to connect it to race. Anybody? You got another one? Go ahead. Ice cream. Okay. Ice cream. Oh, oh, oh. Okay. So I just found out that during the Jim Crow South, Black people were not allowed to eat vanilla ice cream. Yeah, that was a law. They only were allowed to eat it like on on the 4th of July. It was the only time black people could eat vanilla ice cream. 
and I've never liked vanilla ice cream. That is true. Look it up. It is the craziest thing. I just read that article. Black people are not allowed to eat vanilla ice cream. I've never liked vanilla ice cream, and I wonder if it's like remembered trauma. <laughs> you know? And I always see it suspect when people, like my family members, meaning <clears throat> my children, like, why do they eat vanilla ice cream? I'm like, you have so many choices that are so much more colorful and flavorful and chunks and stuff in them. My son will be like, he got like, we were in Spain and he, they had all these lovely like Italian gelato flavors. I mean, things that, like flowers in your ice cream and like all kinds of really cool stuff. And he would get like, oh, can I get two flavors? I was like, oh yeah, what you gonna get? He's like, can I have vanilla and the cream flavored? <laughs> Cause like that's a separate flavor there. It's like, you can have, Nata, which is like cream and vanilla. I was like, you got two doubly white creamy flavors. Like, what's the point? Like, where, where is the, yeah. So I got time for one more stump the, yes, I see a hand, but no face. There we go. Something you do Well, okay, so I'm just going to go with the obvious that, like, film was never created for people of color, that the color wheels, like, everything about print processing ignored people of color of of any shade other than white. We're still behind, still have not actually developed a film, like, print film or processing that can really make people of the melanin-rich people look appropriate on screen, on in print, that it's still like hand done by individual people to make their colors look good, which is why we still are constantly having conversations about, you know, did they lighten her skin or why did that person look so dark? Because we don't have a color correction system that's kind of universal and that's good and that works. So that's definitely, um, that was a good one. So you see, I can turn anything into a conversation about race and diversity. It's a gift. I think it's a gift. Other people think, my children think I'm annoying. Like, why do you have to make everything about race, mom? But um, it's not my fault. Everything is connected to race. So thank you all so much for listening and being here today. If you enjoyed the podcast content that you heard here, please consider subscribing. We are on iTunes and every place else where you can find podcasts at My American Melting Pot. Also, I do, like I said, have a blog. I'm on social media. I am constantly creating content that explores diversity in a way that hopefully, again, makes you think, inspires you, gives you information that you didn't know that you can definitely use, like that ice cream fact. Maybe you can use that somehow. And so the blog is My American Melting Pot, and you can find all of my social media handles there. Again, I'm on Twitter, Facebook, and on Instagram. Also, we have a My American Melting Pot book club. We just launched that earlier this spring, and we read Tembi Locke's book from scratch. It was lovely. And I'm about to announce our September book title, which is going to be really amazing. And if you want to be part of the book club, just follow me anywhere on social. You can also sign up for my newsletter. All of it's on my American Melting Pot blog. And I have to give shout out to my great team. We usually record our show at WRTI Studios in Philadelphia. And my editor and producer's name is Brad Linder. Our sound engineers are Joe Patty, Tyler McClure, and Paul Marchesani. And 
We have our own theme music that was created by uh, Sumi Tanoka, who is a local jazz musician, who she herself is very melting pot. She's black and Japanese. Her father was a Black Panther, and her mother actually was a survivor of the Japanese internment camp. So her story is actually one episode of The Melting Pot. Um, so, you know, we're melting pot through and through. So thank you so much for listening, and always remember to live your life in color. Bye.